Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 4, Episode 14, Sex and Violence. Written by Katherine Humphreys and directed by Charles Beeson. I feel like I shouldn't waste much time setting this one up because this episode has been discussed so much for Queer Dean content and related subjects. It's been pointed to in order to prove Dean's bisexuality, to prove Wincest, to prove all sorts of things, really. Like, Dean is actually a romantic. This is a episode where you, if you look at it from different angles, you can find almost any read you want to take from it. Regardless of what take you have on it, people do seem to have relatively strong feelings about it. I can only talk about it from my perspective, my understanding of how it fits into Dean's entire character arc across the whole series, and I'll say right up front, I read and have since the pilot episode, Dean as bisexual. Even before I ever read a single piece of meta about the show, I'd been watching under the assumption from using my own two eyes that Dean was at the very least sexually flexible and adventurous and willing to try anything. And this is one of the episodes that I always felt proved that out. Sirens read people's minds and then use an inherent sexuality to seduce their victims into killing for them. We later learn it's the siren's saliva that poisons its victims, but Sam and Dean's presumption for the majority of the episode is that it's sexual contact, intercourse, that entraps people. Every single one of the victims they investigate actually had sex with the siren. And yet Nick still chose a male presenting form when approaching Dean the first time. He was already in the Nick guise when they first met. He was already specifically targeting Dean, not Sam, or he would have chosen a guise more similar to the human woman Sam actually does have sex with in this episode. When Nick chose that guise, it was with the belief that as Nick, he could put himself in a position to swap spit with Dean at the very least. He couldn't have known that Dean would offer to share his flask down the line and was prepared to put the moves on Dean enough to earn himself a kiss if it became necessary. So, what exactly did he read in Dean's mind to make him believe that Dean would have kissed him, if not actually have sex with him? Exactly. For me, every argument for or against the queer Dean reading in this episode boils down to one singular point. When Nick knew that his cover working at that strip club was blown and some hunters had rolled into town, he had the option of just walking away. Nothing tied him to this town. He could move on and set up somewhere else and just keep rolling along. I'm sure he's tangled with hunters before. But instead of doing that, he stayed. He targeted the hunters specifically by literally inserting himself into their investigation of him, manipulating the evidence to keep stringing them along and providing a dupe for them to focus on in the form of Dr. Kara, while working to get Dean specifically alone. Even the pretext of Dean taking him to the strip club to, quote, protect the strippers, who were literally never a target of the siren and more cover for his hunting technique of blending in with them, falls apart on the surface there, but also by the fact that Dean and Nick both completely ignore the strippers in the background at the club 
instead completely engrossed in their own conversation. The surface text of this episode is just so flimsy and loosely strung together, asking us to leap so many logic gaps along the way. It's what allowed so many of us to fall through to the subtextual reading humming along right below the surface and only coming up for air long enough to connect the dots between what the siren is and isn't. And the isn't part for me is the incest reading, thanks to that one guy who kills his elderly mom after having sex with the siren. It's about manipulating someone into betraying and murdering their closest loved one, and the main tool in the siren's arsenal is its inherent sexuality, regardless of the relationship between its victim and their doomed loved ones. I usually save the supporting meta for the links section of the post accompanying these podcasts, but I'm going to point everyone to the post I linked from Lizbob as being concise but long for about as tidy a summary of my own thoughts and understanding of the episode's subtext as I'm likely to get. I do encourage everyone to go read that Network Arena also, if you haven't already read it, because it's the same one from Chris Angel is a Douchebag two episodes ago. It's only about a page and a half long, but it's so wildly different to the episode that aired that it's clear how much went into making the episode what it was. In the arena, Kara was supposed to be a police detective, not a doctor, and Kara was also supposed to be the siren. She was supposed to seduce both Sam and Dean, luring them both to shatter themselves on her metaphorical rocks. So the fact that Kara ended up being a purely human dupe, only attracted to Sam, lampshaded by Dean's repeated teasing, complaining about that fact to Sam, and the siren ended up being purely about his singling out Dean for seduction, Remember, he had to grab Sam's face and spit into his mouth to bring Sam under his spell. Siren non-con instead of the seduction that he normally favors in ensnaring his victims through song. And sidebar, because in this case, through Led Zeppelin references, which again was a major point in Mary and John Winchester's love story. And going all the way back to season two and Joe's flirting by being surprised that Dean hadn't tried to seduce her with a six pack inside one of Led Zeppelin four. And then, of course, the infamous top 13 Zepp tracks mixtape that he'll someday give to Cass. Well, once is interesting, twice is a coincidence, three times is a pattern. And once we pass four, well, it's sort of silly to keep counting rather than accept it for what it is. Led Zeppelin references in this show have a theme attached to them. There's a lot I could have linked to as a reference material for this episode, even if my Tumblr tag for it's only six pages long. A lot of the older meta is on LiveJournal because of when this episode aired and where fandom happened to be at that time. Most of it's been archived, thank heck. And linked on various posts in my tag for it, but there is a lot We have another CW promo video for the episode, if you enjoy those. And I already mentioned the arena, but we've also got casting sides for Kara and Nick. We also have the interview with Jim Perrick, the actor who plays Nick, from the official Supernatural magazine, the one where he talks about leading into the sexuality of the siren, playing opposite Sam and Dean both, but of course we all know that he mostly plays off Dean in this episode and how he played the character as not strictly male or female. So that's a really interesting look into how he portrayed this character, 
where he got to speak a lot more freely as a one-off who died at the end of the episode and could not come back. He got to talk a lot more about his process of finding this character within himself. So that's an interesting read. I fully intend to try and keep this episode as brief as possible. Hopefully somewhere in the neighborhood of the last few episodes I've done, because I've been getting really good about keeping them around about an hour. But sometimes it's just not entirely possible. Especially not when this episode gains even more layers of subtext through the power of hindsight. So spoilers, ahoy, as usual. When I was researching for this, I found a ton of stuff from the episode in season 12 regarding Dean. One where he loses his memories and rides Larry and all that. And there's a similar level of subtext at work in that episode as well. And so there's a ton of new posts about this episode that happened in season 12. So eight seasons later, and we're still talking about all the same thematics that still work for Dean as a character. So I find that more supporting evidence for the read that I've chosen to take from this episode as being at least consistent within the larger frame of the narrative of the show. So calling that one a win. And so on that note, let's move on to the then segment, because again, trying to keep this to a reasonably moderate length. The then segment opens on a voiceover of Cass telling Dean that his brother is going down a dangerous road. And it's Sam getting in the car with Ruby at the end of Chris Angel is a douchebag. And I neglected to even mention the parallels between Nick the Siren using his venom to lure in his marks and ensnaring them with his venom, an addictive substance that comes from his body. Like, Ruby is luring Sam in, explicitly in a sexual relationship that we saw in great and extensive detail that we didn't need to see, but were shown anyway. We don't know the blood factor yet that Sam is drinking her blood, but bodily fluids exchanged as a symbol of power and control over somebody during an act of sex. Which, again, on a first watch, you would never even pick up or notice because you don't know the whole thing about Ruby and her blood and Sam's demon powers and why he's so absolutely under her spell, as it were. But through the magnificent power of hindsight, we can understand and add those pieces in here. Because I guarantee that Catherine Humphreys knew about the blood drinking and Sam's how Sam's power was growing when she wrote this episode. We have flashbacks to Ruby asking Sam if he's going to tell Dean about what they're doing and Sam telling her that they have to find the right way to tell him because he's going to be pissed. And Ruby's like, he's going to be pissed regardless, especially if he doesn't hear it from you. When Dean found out the first part about Sam using his powers with Ruby to exercise demons, he doesn't know the worst of it yet. That's still hanging out there. Sam knows the worst of what Dean experienced in hell and why Dean feels bad about it. But Sam has decided not to come clean with Dean. He knows it's wrong. The rest of the segment is Dean trying to get the story out of Sam about why he trusts Ruby so much, which we saw in episodes 9 and 10. Sam finally breaks down and tells the truth about it. Except, again, leaving out that important detail about drinking her blood to gain powers. But... Our last clip there is Sam being bitchy about Dean's persistence and wondering why he trusts Ruby so much. And Sam gets all, yeah, let's just trade stories. You first. How is hell? Don't spare the details. So right off the bat, we're like, Jesus, Sam, what the fuck's wrong with you? Like, we've been through this. 
why that is just so cringy and awful and how Sam has been completely manipulated into the spot where he is now. So that's where we are heading into this episode. There's this destabilization, this lack of trust, and it revolves around Sam's relationship with Ruby that we know he has secretly rekindled two episodes ago. And then we cut to now. We open on a woman tenderizing meat with Chekhov's giant meat tenderizer, Hammer, when her husband comes home from work. And he looks like he's in a crap mood. And we can see the clock up on the wall behind him as he puts his stuff down. And it's 7.30 at night. She asks, is his boss cracking the whip at work? She's trying to be sympathetic with him. And everything she says just seems to piss him off more, including the fact that she ran into a friend of theirs who invited them to a birthday party that Saturday night. And he's just like, I can't believe you. He's like, I don't want to waste my Saturday night with these people. And she's like, I thought you liked them. What is with you? It's like you're trying to have a fight. She's like, I'll call and cancel. But she can't understand what has changed about her husband's behavior. He's acting out of character. And as she's turning on a light, has her back to him. He comes up behind her with the giant meat mallet and starts clobbering her in the head with it. And then we go to the title card. So something is clearly not right with this scene. They show pictures of their wedding where they both look very happy and there's just blood spattered all over it. They clearly are a mostly happy couple. She easily accepts his apology for his behavior when he kisses her and tries to tell her it's going to be okay, that he's just working really hard and he's stressed out. She lets it go. So this is obviously an odd pattern of behavior for her but she turns her back on him. She trusts him. She's not afraid of him. This is not a historical pattern for them. After the title card, we cut to Dean sleeping in some motel room somewhere and a truck horn sounds and wakes him up and he looks over and Sam's not in his bed. He's in the bathroom on the phone talking very quietly like he doesn't want to wake Dean or be overheard, but he's saying something about looking for demon signs and Okay, yeah, we'll be in touch. As Sam is hanging up, Dean lays back down and pretends to be asleep. When Sam comes out and, quote, wakes Dean up, Dean's like, oh, you're up early. What have you been doing? Sam's like, uh, nothing. I was in the can. You want me to draw you a picture? And so Dean knows that Sam is hiding something from him. Because if he'd been on the phone with Bobby, he would have just said, yeah, I was on the phone with Bobby. Or if he was, you know, just trying to let Dean sleep while he was handling something else, he would just say, I was on the phone looking into this hunt that I found, which he brings up in the very next sentence. I found us a hunt. But he doesn't. He hides the fact that he was on the phone. Dean is suspicious. Sam then describes the case that we just witnessed in the cold open and says it's the third man inside two months who's killed his own wife. Sam and Dean go to the prison where the man is being held. He's like, I don't know why the cops keep sending you guys. I already told them I don't want a lawyer. They're under the pretense of offering representation to this man. He said, I, I already told everybody I'm pleading guilty. He feels awful for what he did. He becomes all choked up talking about his wife. He's like, I killed her. I beat her to death because she made plans without asking me first. And he can't believe that he did it. He's like, I was crystal clear in the moment that it happened. I knew exactly what I was doing. 
and I have no idea why. We were happy. And Dean reaches into his briefcase and pulls out some documentation that questions how happy he may have been. Dean comes out with a credit card statement showing that he'd spent over $9,000 at a strip club. He tries to deny it at first, to pretend like he doesn't know what the charges are about. He starts telling the story that he doesn't like going to strip clubs, but he went to one with a buddy of his who was having a bachelor party, and this woman named Jasmine walked right up to him, and he sort of loses the power of speech trying to describe the effect she had on him. He's like, she was perfect. She was everything I wanted. He killed his wife for her, though. Jasmine said they could be together forever if only his wife was out of the picture. They were supposed to meet afterwards, and she never showed up. Sam's like, well, why didn't you tell the police about Jasmine? And he's like, what for? The stripper didn't do it. I did it. If the judge doesn't give me the death sentence, I'll just do it myself. He doesn't want to live anymore. Whatever spell Jasmine held over him is broken now. He ruined his own life, and he doesn't have really any understanding of why he would have done that for some woman whose real name he doesn't even know. We then cut to Dr. Kara Roberts' office, where she's sitting at her desk taking some aspirin. Sam walks in, ostensibly to interview her, and asks, Rough night? And she's like, Fun night, rough morning. And Sam sympathizes and laughs with her about it. Dr. Roberts did autopsies on the three dead women and blood tests on all of the men. When Sam presses for details, she confirms there was nothing unusual in the victims' bloodstreams. The women were all had obvious causes of death, you know, being beaten to death or as we saw with the meat tenderizer mallet. But then Sam asks, what about the men? Did they have anything unusual in their blood? And she asked to see his badge again. Like, this is sensitive information, and she wants to make sure she's sharing it with an actual law enforcement officer. She explains that the one anomaly found in all three of the men's blood was a crazy high level of oxytocin, which, if you've ever been pregnant, you're very familiar with oxytocin. It's the love hormone. It helps bonding with another human being during childbirth, lactation, and, oddly, sex. Or in a new relationship, that first bloom of love is oxytocin. She makes a little joke with Sam about it, and they both have a little moment of, yeah, I like that feeling. I think it's interesting here how they're already setting her up as being someone who likes to have a fun night but a rough morning, and how easily she falls into flirting with Sam, and how she might enjoy that same first bloom of love feeling that we know later that the siren is also seeking. So even more so than most episodes, this is another one that once you've seen it, it's almost like the clues unlock in reverse. (laughs) There's clues all through this episode that help you go, oh, later on. This is one of them, that she's being set up by the siren who can remember, read people's minds, know what they want, know what kind of people they are knew that she would be the most suspicious person involved in this case to pin blame on, even if it was completely false, just because of the type of person she is and what she enjoys. Dean walks in while Sam and Kara are exchanging this smitten look at one another, 
and tries to put on the usual Dean charm. Sam introduces him as Agent Murdoch, and Dean's like, Agent feels so formal, you can call me Dean, and extends a hand for her to shake, and she's just like, yes, I'm Dr. Roberts. She doesn't even give Dean her first name in exchange. She's already got Sam on the hook here. She turns back to Sam with a flirtatious smile and is like, can I help you with anything else? Just completely brushes Dean off. Sam asks what might cause those high levels of oxytocin in the three men. And she's at a loss. She's like, nothing I've ever seen. And with that, Sam's out of questions, thanks her, and nods to Dean that it's time to go. In the doorway, Sam turns back to her. He tells her, by the way, for a hangover, try a greasy breakfast. She laughs and is like, gives him another flirtatious smile and is like, hey, watch it. I'm the only MD here. While Sam had been talking to the medical examiner, Dean had been interviewing the other two men. They both had the same thing. Spent a fortune on strippers, murdered their wives, and then confessed to the entire thing. They all went to the same strip club, though. The Honey Wagon. Which, if you've ever been on a Hollywood studio lot, the bathroom trailer is called the Honey Wagon. So... Hilarious for a strip club to be named after a toilet, but there you go. Even if the audience watching the show doesn't get the joke, everybody on the production team probably thought it was hilarious. Each of the three men described an entirely different woman that he was lured in by, though. They all described her in the exact same way, perfect and everything that they wanted, even though they're describing entirely different women. Sam looks over at Dean, who's like grinning, and he's like, boy, you seem cheerful. What? What's up? Dean's like, strippers, Sammy. We're on an actual case involving strippers. Finally. Like he'd been waiting for the day where he could use going to a strip club as an excuse on a case. And again, it's hilarious because at almost no point during any time that Dean is inside the strip club, does he really pay much attention to the strippers? He bypasses the entire line outside the club, badges the security guard out front, and just walks right in. Dean talks to the owner of the club, asking about the three girls that were involved with the three men who murdered their wives, and he's supremely unhelpful. He doesn't know any of the girls' real identities. They're all independent contractors who work for cash, and the fact that three of his customers may have murdered their wives is none of his business. He knows nothing about it, and Dean sees one stripper... As he's walking over to where he's spotted Sam at the other side of the bar, walks past her and just, just kind of like shakes his head like, nope, not going to look at that. Going to keep walking. Dean reports that he had no luck with the owner. Sam reports that he had a little bit of luck talking to Bobby, who officially has a theory. Siren. And Dean's like, what, like Greek myth siren in the Odyssey? And Sam gives him a look like, how'd you know that? And Dean's like, what, I read. The ongoing saga of, yes, Dean reads shit he's interested in, and he definitely knows his lore, and who doesn't enjoy the Odyssey? There's something for everybody in the Odyssey, including sirens that want men to dash themselves to death on the rocks. Sam describes how a siren attracts her prey, that the siren's song, as Dean jokes, oh, what, like, welcome to the jungle? Cherry pie? Sam's like, no, it's more like a lure that they use to lure in men into their trap. And the whole goal of the siren has always been to watch men destroy themselves over them. 
in the Odyssey, it was crashing their boats into the rocks and sinking and dying and drowning. In 2009, that's working at a strip club, taking the men for everything they've got and getting them to self-implode and destroy their own lives because of the allure of these women, or sirens, that aren't really male or female, but they take on female forms for these dupes at the bar. Dean asks Sam, so whatever floats the guy's boat, that's what they look like? And that's where Sam delivers the intel from Bobby that sirens can read minds. Whatever you want most, that's what they present themselves as. Dean puts it together that it's all the same chick morphing into different dream girls. And Sam confirms that, yeah, sirens are pretty solitary. It's just one creature they're looking for. Bobby doesn't know how to kill it yet, and they don't have any idea how to find it, because it could be anybody. Meanwhile, like 15 feet from where Dane's saying it could be anybody, we see a woman come up to a guy sitting in a corner booth. He says, hey, Belle, and she's like, hey, I thought you'd never come. The next shot we get is of the two of them leaving the bar. Back at the man's apartment, he opens a door and checks on someone sleeping in the next room and then comes back out into the living room where this woman, Belle, is waiting for him. The woman tells him he's amazing for taking care of her when you could just put her in a nursing home. And he's like, it's no big deal. It's my mom. So here's where we're undercutting the whole the siren is about incest because she's praising him for sacrificing to take care of someone he cares about. Yet she's countering that with the romantic and sexual intent of the siren, saying we could be together forever if only she was out of the way. She takes off her dress and he just stands there dumbfounded. And then the next scene we get is the the two of them together on the sofa having sex And we pan across the room to a photo of the man's mother on his mantle next to a statue of the Virgin Mary because, hmm. (laughs) And as we continue panning towards a mirror reflecting the two of them having sex, the mirror shows us the truth. She's not this beautiful woman that this man thinks he's with. It's the siren, a rather horrifying looking creature. And in the afterglow of sex, she tells him how much she loves him and how much time his mother takes up and how they can't really be happy while his mother is around. And I could be with you forever if only she was out of the way. And don't you want to be with me? And then she tells him flat out, if you want to be with me, bash your mother's brains out. It only takes a little tiny bit of encouragement. And he's like, okay, if you say so. And he smiles at her, but then he sits up and he has this look like, why am I doing this? What am I doing? She tells him she loves him again, and that gives him the push he needs to get up off the sofa. He picks up a fire iron and goes into his mother's room. And as he's beating his mother to death, she gets dressed, smiles, and just walks out the door, leaving him with this horrific destruction of his own life and everything he'd cared about before just like a siren does. And for a lot of people, that sequence is key to their understanding of how the siren operates. The siren only understands eros, romantic love, sexuality, and uses that to prey on her victims. 
It's not about family love. Even in a situation where the siren is targeting somebody whose primary familial relationship is with a parent as opposed to a wife or a lover, the siren's MO does not change. The siren wasn't becoming this man's second mother. She was explicitly offering a romantic and sexual relationship, not a motherly one, to replace the man's mother, to convince him to kill his mother. So a lot of people say, oh, well, he must have been having some sort of incestuous relationship with her. No, that is clearly not what is being depicted here which will be lampshaded in text here in a moment, and I'll talk about it then. But the mechanics of what the siren does to somebody, it's about the destruction of that person's life. Yes, they want that person to kill, but they primarily want that person to throw themselves onto the rocks, metaphorically. They want to sink their ship. They want to destroy them in every possible way. And the vehicle that they do that through is again, romantic and sexual love and attraction, not a family relationship. Even if it's in text later, it's kind of like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You watched the rest of the episode. You understand how this works, right? Later on, when the siren tells Dean that he was posing as his little brother, it's like, well, dude, if he was posing as his little brother, he would have posed as someone like his little brother, not an ideal of a romantic and sexual partner. It's not like Dean regularly spits in Sam's mouth that we know of or has any reason to exchange fluids with Sam like that. Why would the siren think that of Dean when he took on that form? We'll discuss that when we get there, but it only really makes sense if you're riding along on that layer of subtext again. The next morning, Dean's in their motel room with a bunch of research books open on the table and Sam had left his phone on the table. Dean stares at it for a few minutes because, you know, he's suspicious of how Sam's been acting, especially after that phone call the previous morning. And Dean finally caves, grabs up the phone, looks through the phone for the number that he'd been talking to the previous morning, calls it, and Ruby answers, hey, Sam. And Sam had not entered Ruby into his phone database. He just left the number as the caller ID. All the other calls are from Dean and Bobby and stuff. Except that one that's just a number, because Sam is trying to hide the fact that he's still in touch with Ruby. Dean is not happy about this. He is very concerned for Sam. Sam walks in in his fed suit and says that, yep, Lenny was definitely another victim of the siren. He brought Belle home from the strip club, and a few hours later, he offed his mom. Dean's like, oh, his mom? And Sam's like, yeah, the woman he was closest to. And Dean's trying not to think too hard about that because of what he knows about sirens and who their victims are pushed to kill. No, Dean, don't go there. Then Sam's phone starts ringing. Dean's like, yeah, you forgot your cell phone. And the look on Sam's face is like one instant of sheer panic. Like, oh shit, does Dean know? Did he answer my phone? But Dean just chucks the phone at Sam and he answers it. And lucky for everybody, it's actually Bobby. Bobby asks if they've found the siren yet, and Sam's like, no, not so much. And he says that he has something, but it's vague, lore from an ancient Greek poem. Bobby says that what you need to kill a siren is a bronze dagger covered in the blood of a sailor who's under the spell of the song. 
Bobby speculates that it's not a literal song, that it's some sort of toxin or venom that she gets into the victim's blood, and a bronze dagger coated with that is fatal to her as well. Sam asks if she infects them during sex, and Bobby's like, maybe. Once the deed is done, though, once her victim destroys himself, she usually makes a run for it because if she gets a dose of her own medicine, the toxin that she used to infect her victims into crashing on the shoals, as it were, if they turn around and attack her with a bronze dagger, I mean, who walks around stabbing people with bronze daggers nowadays? But there's a risk if one of the men she destroys seeks vengeance. Like the man in the first segment said, he waited for her and she never showed up. Well, yeah, of course not. Dean's like, okay, so what do we do? Have to get blood from one of the guys in jail? And Bobby's like, well, none of them are under the spell anymore. You need blood from when they were still under the spell. And then Sam remembers, Dr. Kara took blood samples from all of them. They're probably still being stored down in evidence. Bobby gives them one last warning to be careful because sirens are very tricky and they will have you wrapped up in knots before you know what hit you. They go back down to Dr. Kara's office and Sam's like, ah, Dr. Roberts. And even though Dean is standing right there, she's like, ah, Agent Stiles can't stay away, huh? And Dean rolls his eyes like, yeah, what am I, chopped liver? Sam asks her about the blood samples with the oxytocin, and Dean's like, yeah, we're going to need them. And she's like, what for? Just as they're about to get down to business of what they need them for, another man in a suit comes over and is like, excuse me, Dr. Roberts. And Dean's like, pulls out his ID and Sam pulls out his. Dean's like, excuse me, we're a little busy here. And the other guy pulls out an FBI badge. And he's like, yeah, so am I, pal. Immediately challenging Dean specifically. Sam flashes his badge again, and Dean asks the guy his name, Nick Monroe, and he's like, well, what's yours? And Sam introduces them as Sam Stiles and Dean Murdoch. Sam asks what office he's out of, and he's like, Omaha, violent crimes. My ACC sent me down here to look into this. And Dean tries to one-up him, saying they're from D.C., and the assistant director sent them, which trumps his Omaha branch office, I suppose. But Nick questions this. Nick asks which AD, and Sam immediately says Mike Kaiser. Then Nick asks what their badge numbers are. Dean's like, you gotta be kidding me. And Nick's just like, I'm just following protocol. Sam and Dean are convinced they've got a real FBI guy trying to horn in on their case, and they're not even questioning why. Sam hands Nick a business card and says, just call our AD and he'll sort things out. He introduces himself to the person on the phone as Nick Monroe and... He's questioning whether Styles and Murdoch were put onto his case by accident. And then we get to finally see who the assistant director is. It's Bobby in his kitchen making lunch. Yet he's carrying this whole thing out. Are you questioning my authority? And Nick has to be like, oh, no, no. When Bobby hangs up the phone on him, we see that he's got all kinds of phones up on the same wall. Federal Marshal, FBI all of their cover lines that other hunters use when they need someone to vouch for them in an official capacity. And as Bobby hangs up, he's like, mm, idiots. But of course, being Bobby, he doesn't let it just rest at that, like Sam and Dean do. They just believe this guy is actual fed and roll with it. Bobby, at least, looks into the guy. One quick call to this guy's supervisor could have cleared that up. I bet he doesn't have fake business cards. 
and a Bobby to answer the phone and pretend to be his supervisor. Nick comes back and is like, okay, I'm really sorry about that. And like, he's willing to work with them now that he knows they've established dominance in this case. And they are the ones in charge, supposedly, even though none of them are really in charge of anything. Dean asks where he is with the case. And Nick's like, well, I was about to run the perp's blood work. And Sam tells him, no, that's a dead end. There's nothing to be found there. And then Nick's like, okay, but I've got something else. So obviously fishing for the lead about the blood work, which is what Sam and Dean are literally back there for, was Nick fishing for where they're at on the case. Do they know about the blood and why that might be important? Because he's already stolen it back because it's the only thing that can actually hurt him. Nick's like, I found something that'll connect all the murders. They were all banging strippers from the same club. And this whole time, Nick is just maintaining eye contact with Dean. He's like, what do you say we go down there and check it out? As if he didn't know that Sam and Dean had already been there because he was literally there, standing 15 feet away from them the night before, right before he took Leonard back to his apartment and had him kill his mom. Dean tries to tell him, oh no, you see, we're kind of lone wolves, and Sam cuts him off, and he's like, no, hey, hang on, give me a second with my partner. Sam's like, you've got to keep him out of the way. And Dean's like, what am I supposed to do with him? And Sam's like, well, I got to get the blood samples. Take him to the strip club. Keep an eye out for the siren. Sam tells him to just focus on the naked girls. You'll forget he's even there. And Dean makes a show of saying, yeah, well, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for those girls. Which is absolutely hilarious because at no point in this episode were the women ever in danger. The other strippers were just other strippers. They weren't ever targets of the siren. And this is one of those circumstances where the siren is probably picking information directly from Dean's brain because Dean walks out to his car and he's like, we're taking my ride, no complaining about the tunes. And Nick immediately pings that this car is something Dean loves. He's like, oh, it's a 67, 327 four barrel. Dean's like, yeah. And he admires it. He calls her a thing of beauty. And... Dean immediately softens up on this guy. He's like, oh, well, you've got taste. And Nick's only question for him is, how the hell did you talk the Bureau into letting you drive your own wheels? Like, you're not driving the official issued FBI mobile. Back in Dr. Kara's office, she's asking him why he needs those blood samples. And Sam's like, we want to run some tests. And she's like, well, I've already run every test there is. That's kind of my job. Sam just uses the excuse that they know a specialist who'd like to try out a theory. I guess Bobby's the specialist who has a theory, and Sam wants to test it out by trying to stab a siren with it, (laughs) with a bronze dagger. Kara's like, okay, well, if you say so. And she goes over to the little cooler where she keeps all the blood samples, and they're gone, immediately casting suspicion on her. On her desk, right by the cooler, is the hyacinth flowers that Nick will later point out as suspicious and found at all the crime scenes, just because she happened to have that plant in her office that he's already seen because he's already stolen the blood. Meanwhile, over at the strip club, Dean and Nick have a little romantic table for two, a short distance away from the stage. Neither of them are paying a drop of attention to any of the strippers. They're drinking shots together giving each other trivia quizzes on old Led Zeppelin songs. Dean is just getting carried away, just liking the guy. And he's like, dude, for a fed, you're not a total dick. And Nick's like, 
aren't we both feds? And Dean's like, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to be playing federal agent man. Yet they're both sitting in a strip club at lunchtime, drinking shots while they're supposed to be on duty. And Nick brings it back around to the case. He's like, what the hell's with this? How does a girl talk four different Johns into murder? Dean makes eye contact with a woman across the bar who gives him kind of a suspicious look and he holds eye contact as she walks away. But we all know that comes to absolutely nothing. His attention goes right back to Nick again. Nick said he's found something a little weird and Dean's like, well, you come to the right place. Lay your weird on me. Nick hands him a plastic crime scene evidence bag. He says that at the scene that morning, he caught them bagging up these flower petals. Nick lets Dean ponder this while he informs Dean that he went back through the records and they found these flower petals at every single crime scene. And Dean's like, oh, this is totally new information. Yeah, be Dean, because he just made it up on the spot. And Dean's like, what do you think it means? And Nick offers the theory that a serial killer will leave something at a scene like a calling card, but he's just has no idea what this case is about because Dean doesn't understand that this guy knows anything at all about the supernatural or that it could be a literal monster killing people. He just thinks it's a woman convincing all of these people to kill their wives. So while Nick doesn't know what this means, Dean thinks he might. He's seen a flower like this before. And we cut back to Kara's office where we see that exact flower. And Sam is still there in the office with her. They're going back over the security footage, trying to figure out who broke into her office and stole the blood samples. Kara's like, we've been over it twice. Whoever stole it, and then Sam finishes, must have tampered with the tapes. Sam asks Kara who had access to her office, and she's like, everybody, I don't lock it. And Sam's like, what? Nobody's ever stolen evidence from my office before. And then she asks, what's so important about this blood? And Sam's like, We think the men may have been drugged, which, not entirely inaccurate. She asks what kind of drug, and Sam's like, we're not sure yet. And she's like, I interviewed all those guys, and they had their reasons, implying that they didn't need to be drugged to kill their wives, and Sam's like, well, they loved their victims. And she's like, so? Kara starts talking about how, you know, have you ever been in a relationship where you really love someone, but you kind of wanted to bash their head in? as if in some impulsive moment of anger, you gave in to that urge. Maybe that's just what these guys all did. To a human, that seems like a reasonable thing, especially a human who works in, does criminal autopsies, and has probably seen horrific crimes of passion. But also to a siren, her cavalier attitude toward it kind of comes off suspicious. And Sam is not putting up any stop signs here. He's just rolling with it on a case where a woman is seducing men into horrific acts. And it's like, Sam, Sam, even though she turns out to be purely human, dude, why? Kara gets out some whiskey and pours them each a drink, which the sharing of a drink will become very key to Dean getting poisoned. But here it is in a purely human, sexual, romantic fashion being offered to Sam. She tells Sam, it's medicine. I'm a doctor. And he takes the drink. He doesn't drink it right away, though. He kind of waits for her to drink it first. She starts telling the story of her ex, Carl. They were married. She loved him, but one day she looked up and it was like she was living with a stranger. 
She asks Sam if he knows what she means, and he's like, I guess. Sam asks if the two of them split up, and she's like, yeah, I guess that's a word for it. So we know that there's some more to this story that she's not told him. Sam's phone rings. He looks at it, and she's like, ah, do you need to get that? And he looks at the phone and stops the ringing, and he's like, ah, nope, not right now. It was probably Dean calling with information about the flowers and to alert him to the fact that Kara looked awfully suspicious because of that. Kara gives him her motto that she seems to be living by, have fun, no regrets, and live life like there's no tomorrow. And for a lot of the guys who got trapped into the sirens snare, that's basically what happened. There was no tomorrow for them. And then she begins to come on very strong to Sam, saying she's been thinking about him all night and she can't stop thinking about kissing him. And she takes off his tie and they do the do. And at this point, we, the viewers, think, oh no, Sam's going to be under the siren spell. What, is he going to try and kill Dean? But honestly, Sam, what were you thinking? Regardless of you, if you believe she may or may not be the monster in this case, Why would you engage in sexual activity in a town where you are investigating a siren that can take on any shape and infects its victims through sex? Why would you have any sort of sexual contact with anyone in this town until you could prove whether or not they were the siren? It's just boneheaded, Sam. And I judge him hard for that one. And so will Dean. Sam calls Dean when he's not in the motel room and Dean chews him out. He's like, What were you doing all this time? Why weren't you answering your phone? Sam's like, well, I was with Kara. Dean's like, oh, it's Kara now, huh? And Sam informs him that the blood samples have gone missing. And Dean's like, really? Shocker that because Nick found these flower petals at all the crime scenes. And it's looking a lot like Kara's our siren. And Dean drops the bombshell that Kara's ex-husband is a dead ex-husband. She's only been in town two months. That is about the same amount of time that the murders in town have been happening. She's got this live for today, carefree attitude toward life now. And her husband died under mysterious circumstances. Even Kara seemed to imply that with her cavalier attitude towards these men killing their wives, that maybe she did something to stimulate Carl's heart attack. And Sam is like, no, she's not the siren. And Dean's like, you sound pretty sure. Sam's like, it's a hunch. Dean's like, did you sleep with her? You did, didn't you? Because Sam can't answer him. Dean's like, in the middle of basic instinct and you bang Sharon Stone? He cannot believe that Sam would do that. And honestly, neither can I. But Sam is convinced he's not under her spell, that she's not the siren. Golly, that's exactly what somebody under the spell of the siren would say. But Sam's not under the spell of the siren. He's legit and honest about how he actually feels. He's not under any spell. But this episode underscores the divide between Sam and Dean, his suspicions of Sam. What is Sam doing behind his back and lying to him about? Well, first of all, Dr. Kara, he lied to him about that or tried to. And that's on an active hunt. But he knows there's something much deeper going on with Ruby who Sam also has a sexual relationship with. And Sam is not coming clean about any of that. And it looks really bad for Dean here, the way he is overreacting to Sam's denials. And it's like, well, Dean, 
you're probably mildly under the siren's spell already. You know what I mean? You haven't been envenomated yet, but you're falling under his allure here. You're willing to believe everything that Nick Monroe says because you still believe he's a real fed and you believe his lead about the hyacinth flowers and you believe everything else that you found out as a result of that because that's exactly the trail you were led down. And that's exactly what's happening with Sam and Ruby. So while it looks bad for Dean here that he's falling for any of this and that he's being extra judgmental towards Sam about all of this, especially about the Ruby stuff that is still under the surface in this episode. It's all vindicated in the end when we find out what Ruby was really up to the whole time and how she manipulated Sam very much like the siren is trying to manipulate Dean here into believing a string of lies or manipulations. Dean's like, what's with you and banging monsters? He brings up Madison the werewolf and Ruby and now Kara. Sam is still insisting that she is not the siren that he feels fine. And Dean's like, no, of course you're saying that. Sam's like, just tell me where you are and we'll come figure all this out. And Dean's like, no, I got to handle this myself because you went and got yourself compromised. But Dean doesn't handle it himself. He calls for backup from his trusty new pal, Nick Monroe. Meanwhile, back in the motel, Sam is angry. He throws his phone across the room. He's so damn angry. And then Dean calls and leaves a message for Bobby about his worries over Sam, that he thinks Sam has been infected by the siren. But Bobby's not answering because, as we'll find out shortly, Bobby's on his way to town with the dagger and the proof of the cure because he looked into Nick Monroe because he's not a moron. But Dean's next call is to Nick Monroe. Dean asks for Nick's help canvassing to find somebody. They go sit outside a bar where they see Dr. Roberts go. It's not so much canvassing as a stakeout in Nick's federal issue looking vehicle. Dean gets in the car with Nick and Nick starts asking questions like, what do you think? She's drugging these guys? And Dean's like, yeah, pretty much. Nick is trying to suss out the logic behind Dean's thinking that all these different girls are actually the same girl, but they're not strippers. It's actually Dr. Quinn. And that's a line Dean would say, right? Making a Dr. Quinn reference. But Dean just lets it roll off. He thinks this is a totally normal way to talk. Nick is like, this is unbelievable. How does this make any sense? And Dean's like, you're just going to have to trust me. I have my reasons and they're good ones. And he gets out his flask and takes a sip. And then in the spirit of working together, I suppose, he offers the flask to Nick. And the little laugh when Nick takes the flask from Dean is like, boy, I didn't think it was going to be half this easy to get my venom into this guy. I thought I was going to have to wait and lure him into making out with me. As Dean takes another sip from the flask after Nick did, Nick asks, so how do you think she's drugging her Vicks? Dean responds, oh, maybe she's injecting them or passing the toxin through physical contact because they know that it's like, as Dean described it earlier, a magical STD. Dean thinks you got to have sex in order to get it. And that's why he thinks Sam is infected. And then Nick looks down at the flask in Dean's hands and says, or it could be the saliva. And Dean starts showing his intoxication. He says to Dean, you really should have wiped the lip of that thing before you drank from it. 
And Dean looks up in the rearview mirror and sees Nick's reflection, and it's the siren face. And then we have what Nick says with words. I should be your little brother. You can't trust Sam like you can trust me. And it's like Dean had already felt that. He felt like he couldn't trust Sam. He told Sam he wasn't going to even tell him where he was to come help with the case. He called Nick instead because Nick's trustworthy, more trustworthy than Sam was. He didn't need the poison to convince Dean of that. The whole thing of Nick's MO, the siren, not just Nick the guy here, but the siren's MO is promising a forever relationship with somebody. And in every single instance this far, it's been about sex and romantic love. And my cat just hit my microphone. Virgil, go away, buddy, sweetie. And yes, using the siren to drive a wedge between Sam and Dean or to just highlight the wedge that the narrative has been driving between Sam and Dean sort of all season long over a romantic relationship using Dr. Kara as the romantic relationship that's foiling their relationship now. But before that, the deception with Ruby and their romantic and sexual relationship. And Nick is like, oh, no, but I'm the little brother you want. Why would he use that, even though I understand narratively on the surface level why he would use that? But read any of the number of posts that I'm going to attach to this podcast for a quick rundown of why that's just so surface level as to be unbelievable that Nick would suddenly change his MO and have it not be about sex and romance. It's about destroying his target. And he's trying to destroy Dean. Nick then says, I really think you should get Sam out of the way so we can be brothers forever. And Dean's like, yeah, you're right. A little while later, Sam comes back into their hotel room and sees Nick sitting on the foot of the bed. And he's like, Nick, what are you doing here? And Dean jumps Sam from behind, slams the door and puts a knife up to Sam's neck. Nick's just sitting over on the bed watching this happen. And it only takes Sam a few seconds to realize Nick is the siren. Dean is under his spell. And Sam doesn't even question that, even while he still believes that the way you a siren infects you is through sex. Sam's like, oh, I gotta tell you, you're one butt-ugly stripper. And Nick replies, maybe, but I got exactly what I wanted. I got Dean. Meaning Dean didn't think he was a butt-ugly stripper. Dean fell right into his trap, furthering the notion that Sam gets it. Dean was attracted to this guy enough that he let himself be infected by a thing that infects you through sex. While Sam is talking to Dean, telling him, this is not you, you can fight this. Nick tells Dean, why don't you cut him just a little on his neck right there? And Dean does. He cuts Sam's neck without hesitating, proving to Sam just how far under the spell Dean is. Nick tells Sam that he didn't poison Dean, he gave him what he needed, and it wasn't some bitch in a G-string, and gives Sam three whole seconds to contemplate what that means, that Dean doesn't really care about the strippers that he proclaims his attraction to, and that what he really wanted was Nick, or someone like him. And it's not Sam, as Nick says, that he was impersonating or trying to be, he was trying to be the perfect person partner for Dean, because that's all a siren understands. 
Nick ticked every box of what Dean would be attracted to in a person. Someone who is on the same wavelength, makes the same sort of jokes and pays attention to him, focuses on him, listens to him. I mean, it took, what, like a day for Dean to be more willing to trust Nick's evidence trail than Sam's or even Bobby's. I mean, granted, he tried to call Bobby for advice or help and Bobby didn't answer, but he didn't wait for an answer from Bobby either. Nick tells Sam about what Dean wanted and now he loves me. He'd do anything for me just like Dean would normally do anything for Sam. Well, now he'd do anything for Nick, including kill Sam, that Dean has dedicated his entire life to saving, to the point where he literally threw himself into hell with no hope of ever coming back out again in order to save Sam. And he describes the devotion as being the best feeling in the world, the intensity of Dean's love for him now. Sam asks if that's why Nick is slutting all over town to get that feeling again. And Nick's like, yeah, I get bored like we all do. And I want to fall in love again and again and again. And that's very similar to what Kara said to Sam that enticed him into their little tryst. But it's way creepier coming from Nick because he doesn't want to just have fun and then move on. He wants to have fun by dashing someone's life to pieces through the guise of love. Sam calls him a needy, pathetic loser, and Nick's like, oh, you won't feel that way in a moment. He has to hold Sam's face still, and he spits in his mouth from his little venom sack. And Sam is only struggling for another second or two before the venom hits. And then he's just as powerless to resist as Dean is. Nick lifts Dean's arm off from where he's still holding Sam in place with the knife to his neck and tells them that they have a lot to discuss because, you know, he can read their minds. Nick's like, and whoever survives can be with me forever. Dean starts off saying, maybe it happened while I was in hell or maybe while I was staring right at you, but the Sam I knew is gone. Dean's like, it's not just the demon blood or the psychic crap. It's the little stuff, the lies. And Sam's like, what secrets? And Dean's like, Phone calls from Ruby, for one. And when Dean's like, yeah, that's the point. Why are you hiding these things from me? What else aren't you telling me? And Sam's like, it's none of your business. And there's the problem. There's the divide. Sam demanded for the first half of the season that Dean peel back every layer and reveal every hurt he had taken in hell, every awful thing that had happened to him. And Sam still refuses to tell Dean the full truth. Dean's like, we used to be in this together. What happened? And Sam's like, okay, you want to know why I didn't tell you about Ruby and how we're hunting down Lilith? Because you're too weak to go after her. And there it is. That argument that Sam had been having built up in his mind all season long by Ruby. Only you can do this, Sam. Only you're strong enough only you have this power. Dean doesn't have it. He doesn't understand. He never could understand. He's too weak. And Sam bought that line now, especially after last week's episode where he went right back to Ruby. He's not willing to just give in like he believes Dean has. Sam tells Dean he's holding him back, that Sam's a better hunter than Dean is. And Dean just stands there and takes it. And it's like, dude, Sam... 
No, you're not. You're good, mostly, but you're not, Dean. Sorry. Sam's like, I'm stronger and smarter, and I can take out demons you're too scared to go near. Sam's like, you're too busy sitting around whining about all the souls you tortured in hell. Boo-hoo. And that's what drives Dean to attack him. He's like, I'm not listening to this shit from you. Dean throws the knife, but Sam ducks it and hits Dean back. I know that Sam is under the spell of the siren here, but these things that they're saying to each other here are deep-seated beliefs that they currently hold. This was a confessional moment for them. They're not being fake with the things that they're saying to each other. This is being dredged up out of them. It took me years to like Sam. I mean, I love him because Dean loves him, but man, I really just do not like him as a person. (laughs) And it's stuff like this that's why. But I mean, obviously, the deeper layer to this is Sam's being manipulated into believing these things about Dean, and clearly they are not true. And he feels terrible about them after the fact, but he still let himself be manipulated into believing these things in the first place. It's all very rebellious teenager, nobody just understands me kind of, and I just, I find it exhausting. (laughs) So again, I doubt there's any like Sam first stands that still listen to this podcast. And if there are, you know, again, I'm offering you the chance to bail because at least before the end of the season, guys, get off this train. If you're only here because you want to hear wonderful things about Sam, because it's going to get worse, folks, just so you know. Anyway, back to this episode. It's very entitled behavior. And he also believes here that Dean broke first, that Dean got himself infected first, that Dean is at fault for the fact that they're having this conversation at all. And honestly, The two of them really did need to give each other a few good punches because, oh my God. But honestly, Sam's whole, you're not standing in my way anymore. And it's like, in your way of what? Starting the apocalypse, you stupid piece of crap? God, shut up. But I mean, they don't know that yet because they're all being manipulated. So on some level, it's very frustrating. But (laughs) I'm sorry, I'll shut up and get back to it now. Dean tackles Sam into the door and it knocks the door down. Dean lands on top of Sam, sort of wins him, and then sees an emergency axe behind a glass panel on the wall. He breaks the glass, grabs the axe, and he's about ready to axe Sam to death. Nick strolls over and he's like, do it. Do it for me, Dean. Dean's standing over Sam going, tell me again how weak I am, Sam, how I hold you back. And Sam looks genuinely terrified. And just as Dean's about to swing the axe, a hand comes and stops him. It's Bobby. Bobby then stabs Dean in the back of the shoulder with a brass dagger and goes taking off after Nick, who runs for it because he knows this guy is capable of killing him. And even Sam is like, no, like, don't hurt the siren because they're both still under the spell. But Bobby throws the knife and it hits Nick square in the back and he staggers over to the wall where there's a mirror And we get to watch his little death throes in the mirror with the siren face. And as soon as Nick is dead, the spell of his venom breaks with it. And Sam and Dean now have to face all the things they've just said to one another while under his spell. Because they both realize, okay, that was true. 
and honest, but it was stuff I would never have said out loud. Holy shit. And then we come to the denouement. The next day after everything's been cleaned up and resolved, Sam, Dean, and Bobby are standing by their cars in what looks like a commercial shipping yard near a bridge, and Bobby hands them each a bottle of soda because they're driving. Sam awkwardly is like, thanks, Bobby, if you hadn't shown up when you did, uh, yeah, Dean would have killed him. Bobby's like, you'd have done the same for me more than once. Bobby then scolds them. He's like, you could have picked up the phone. It only took one call to find out that Agent Nick Monroe wasn't real. And they're both like, yeah, lesson learned. Bobby asks him if they're okay, and they both give a, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, like they always do. And then as he's getting in his car, he turns back and he's like, you know, those sirens are nasty things because it got to you. That shouldn't make you feel bad, you know. Like, it could have happened to anybody. Dean asks Sam if he's going to say goodbye to Kara. And Sam's like, no, not interested. What's the point? Dean's like, yeah, look at you. Love him and leave him. I mean, that's how Dean's basically lived his whole life, knowing that he can't stick around anywhere. But Sam had always wanted relationships. Sam then tries to tell Dean, you know, I didn't mean those things I said back there, right? It was just the siren spell talking. And Dean's like, oh, yep, of course, me too. And Sam's like, so we're good? And Dean's like, yeah, we're good. And they both get in the car with their sodas and drive away. And that's the end of the episode. It's very clear to us, the audience, that they are very not good. Especially those of us who've seen the show before and know where all of this is leading and know that that's exactly what Sam is being driven to believe about Dean, that he's too weak to handle this, that he has been harmed by his time in hell, that he's not the Dean he used to be. Sam truly does believe that he is the better, smarter hunter who is succeeding more than Dean, and Dean is just jealous of that or something, even though it's absolutely bonkers to everybody who's seen the whole series to understand that Sam truly did believe that at this point. And it goes to show how affected Sam is being by a different kind of poison entirely, demon blood, that Dean doesn't know about yet, and that he still won't know about for a few more episodes to come. But Dean knows that Sam is hiding things from him about how he and Ruby are going after Lilith. Dean is being deliberately left out of that loop because he knows that Dean would not approve, and he definitely knows that Dean would not approve of the method. But nothing is ever said again about how Dean got infected by that siren. We saw Sam, that Nick basically grabbed his face and spat in his mouth, so Sam now does understand the mechanics of how someone gets infected, but he didn't even stop to question it when he realized Dean was infected, when he only believed that sirens could infect you through sex. And Bobby never stopped to question how Dean was infected or how Sam was subsequently affected either. He just walked in, knew what the situation was, and took charge of it. No questions asked. The assumption is that they all still suspect that Dean was somehow compromised by the siren through the siren's usual MO of sexual and romantic attraction. And it's never mentioned again. Well, not until season 12, when Dean finds out that sirens aren't necessarily female, 
And I kind of wonder how much Sam told Amnesiac Dean about his own experience with a male siren. Because Dean doesn't seem shocked. He just seems like, oh, that's cool kind of reaction to it. But we'll talk about that in eight seasons when we get there. (laughs) Let's stick to this season. So there's a lot of uncomfortable truths that are said in this episode, but that are dismissed. That a viewer in this situation might be like, yeah, they both overreacted. They're both being unreasonable with what they said to each other. But viewers who have seen the rest of season four know that, yeah, they were saying the flat out truth to each other and just hand waved it away at the end of the episode and don't actually deal with any of these issues. And it probably would have helped them if they had stopped and said, hey, yeah, this is how I'm feeling about what's going on. Well, maybe we should examine that and explore it and maybe make a phone call and find out if what you're believing here is the truth. But nope, they didn't. Even after Bobby's warning to be aware of people pretending to be who they're not. And I'm just going to say, as far as all the queer Dean subtext in this episode, please just go read at least a couple of the linked articles in the post for this episode because there is some really good stuff in there. And it's not something that I could cram even into this, what's probably going to be a very long podcast for the length that I've been regularly producing. So apologies for that. But this is a really, really good one. Anyway, next week, we're going to jump right back into the myth arc of the Breaking Seals and some of our main series villains here with season four, episode 15, Death Takes a Holiday in a town where people have stopped dying. Until then, you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter at SPNGeorge or at MittensMorgul, or you can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865, or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. I had the hardest time recording this episode tonight because... For some reason, one of my cats decided that after having them for months and months and months now, almost a year, that this would be the night to explore what the microphone does and why I have it in front of my face for several hours and why I'm completely ignoring him for several hours. And it's like, dude, I do this every week. What are you talking about? But my cat came over and he kept rubbing his face against the microphone stand and against the microphone and pushing his way onto my lap and... (laughs) (laughs) messing with everything and just demanding my attention. And of course I gave it to him because he's a cat and that's what you do. Apologies for any weird noises I was not able to edit out of this podcast, but he eventually decided that I was not being interesting enough and went away. (laughs) So we got through it. Anyway, uh, thank you to my co-host Virgil, who purred in my face for a little bit and bumped the microphone a lot. (laughs) Appreciate the assistance, pal. Have a good one, everyone. He's rubbing his face on my microphone. This is great. Hi, Virgil. Now go away. I'm trying to record, dumbass. And I'm recording all of this. Crap. Okay, well, that's going to get edited out.